0: Well, this morning you see, that I have a stool. Uh, I had a little surgery on my leg uh, in uh, uh, this week, and uh, they told me I need to stay off my leg because they said otherwise the stitches will pull out. And so I thought I don't want that to happen, you know, swelling and then the stitches pull out. And I thought about a recliner, but <laughs> seemed a little too casual, and. Uh, we'll see how this goes. Uh, This is kind of weird for me, uh, preaching from this stool, but I thought, you know, at least it gets me off of the leg, and so we're going to do that. So I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're starting a new series, and the title of the series is what I hope will happen in the series. The title of the series is Fall on Your Knees fall on your knees. And that's what my hope is, is that we as a people, as we look at who Jesus is, in fact, will fall on our knees. Jesus, uh, our Savior, Jesus, the one that, that died for us, Jesus, the one who shed his blood for us, that we would fall on our knees. Now, as we begin Matthew's gospel, it starts out with the birth narrative of Christ, right? And so I want to ask you a question as we get started into this. Here's the question, uh, and I'll do it by way of illustration. Uh, what is this introduction? Everybody has great introductions, right? When they write something, they have this super introduction that just orients you to what they're getting ready to talk about, and you're ready to read. So tell me what this line comes from. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities, of two cities right? Charles Dickens. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick. Moby Dick. Uh, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. And it raises questions for you, right? The question is, uh, why is he living in a hole in the ground? Who, what is a hobbit? You know, why, what is going on here? And you're, you're engaged in this thing. Here's one. It was a pleasure to burn. Anybody? Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury. Here's another one. See if you know this one. This one's a little obscure, uh, but some of you may know it. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. George Orwell, 1984, the book 1984. Here's one, and I, and I don't know this one, but I thought, man, I want to read this. You know, I, I don't even know if it's any good. But here was a great intro. It says, in the beginning, we're a group of nine. Three are gone, dead. There are six of us left. They are hunting us, and they won't stop until they've killed us all. I am number four. I know that I am next. And you're like, whoa, what happened? What's going on? I mean, you find yourself engaged, right? And even with, when you read the book of Genesis, in the beginning, a line that's famous that you know about, it's, it's, it kind of engages you. In the beginning of what? And, and you begin to ask yourself questions, and so it's engaging. John picks up on that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you think, man, that's a great introduction. And so we pick up the Gospel of Matthew, And what we're expecting is really what happens in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. We go, man, I'm in. Tell me more. But that's not how he starts. In fact, we all start there. I guarantee you that many of us don't start in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. And (sighs) And Jacob was a father, right? I mean, that's, that's and we and kind of say, oh, okay, lots of names. And so we jump forward, we jump ahead to verse 18. Oh, yeah, this is the good stuff, right? How many of you have had your quiet times in the first 17 verses of chapter 1? Anybody? Are there some of you? Maybe somebody here? A couple of people, one or two hands. How many people have heard a sermon preached on these list of names? a couple in fact if you listen to David Jeremiah i think that uh, he actually did uh, this series uh, or this uh, this passage since lingle and i have been kind of alternating series i had several weeks to kind of be involved in, in thinking about this fall on your knees series and i found myself three weeks every day for my quiet time i i got enamored by this 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 list of names and I was thinking, I, it surprised me. I, I kind of thought, okay, I need to figure out if I want to preach on this or not. And, 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 and I started getting more and more engaged in this. And I was thinking, man, I hope other people are as fascinated as I am. You know, maybe, maybe not, maybe it's a yawner for you, but I, I think when you begin to understand, who is he writing to? Who is Matthew writing to? Who is his audience? And so you look at the Gospels, and you see all four Gospels, and here's who their audience is, and here's the main idea of the books. And their audience are the Jews for Matthew, the Roman audience for Mark, Uh, for Luke it's the Greek audience, and for John it's the church or believers. And then the focus of of Matthew is Messiah, King of Israel. That's his focus. He wants to prove that Messiah, this Messiah, that Jesus is this Messiah, and he is the one who's the King of Israel. Mark's focus is the suffering servant that Isaiah talks about, this suffering servant who is to come. And then Luke's focus is he's the son of man. Why would he focus that with the Greeks? Because the Greeks' focus was the perfect person, the perfect man, the perfect woman. You see that in all their statues. They're trying to say, this is the perfect one. It's kind of like the mannequin that you see at the store and and that has the clothing on it. And I think the clothing doesn't look like that on me. You know? Because the mannequin has this perfect form to it, right? And that was their focus. That was the Greeks' focus. And then John is focused on Jesus as Savior. If you want to start reading, if you've never read one of the Gospels, start with John. That was a great one for, for getting started with. And so you have these different focus. Well, you look at Matthew's gospel, and it's a very simple outline for the book. He's talking about the arrival of the king and the proclamation of the king, his messages, and then the rejection of the king and his crucifixion, and then the resurrection of the king. And so we have those as our focus as we look at this book. And so we know what we're getting here at the very beginning is the credentials of the king. The credentials of the king, he's proving Jesus is the one. He's proving to his Jewish audience and to us as, as well, here's the proofs that proves that Jesus is the Messiah. And so, if he had started with this Jewish audience and said, Hey, I want to tell you about the virgin birth, they would say, Wait, 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 hold up. Eh, what about the genealogies? And if he would have started with the wise men, they would have said, Ah, eh, wait a minute. That's all great and everything. But what about the genealogies? How do we know he was a physical descendant of Abraham? A physical descendant of David? How do we know that? Because if he's not those two things, both of them, he's not any Messiah. And so Matthew is is starting with the thing, the question that's burning for them. They would be so... Uh, It would be very engaging to them, this introduction, more so than it is necessarily with us, until we understand, without this genealogy, Jesus is not the Messiah. That's profound and powerful. But when you look at it, you realize he is the Messiah. This, this by the way, this genealogy is the one uh, of Joseph the father. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 4, you have uh, uh, the genealogy of, of, of uh, Jesus' mother. And so on both sides, Jesus fits the bill. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He fits the lineage. Now, why would this be important? Well, following a lineage is very important. If you ever follow, uh, some of you may follow the kings of, and queens of England and, on the royalty thing, and then you, you see them in the news, and our, our country loves the royals, right? And so we find ourselves with Queen Elizabeth II, and the question is, you know, she's getting a little old, right? And, 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 and she's not going to be around forever, and so the question is, Who's next? And they have a whole line and they have a whole s- laws that are written on who, how you figure out who's next. And we know that just the next three are Prince Charles, Prince William, and Prince George. And it's important, they, that's a big deal, Who uh, this line, lineage, and you look at the lineage of Jesus, it's equally, and in fact, more important. Who Jesus was, in fact. Now, at first, when I looked at this, Uh, genealogy, I thought, uh, why did did he move it up to the front? I mean, at least Luke kind of moved it back to chapter 4, right? You know, he got got his, you know, talk about John the Baptist first, and then let's talk about Jesus, and then, okay, I'll I'll give you the genealogy. Why does Matthew move it up to the front? Was it because, I mean, after all, he was a tax collector. He's used to lists of names, right? He liked that kind of thing. Maybe that's why he moved it forward. No, I don't think so. Usually in, in especially Greek and Hebrew uh, writing, when something was important, you moved it to the front of the sentence when you wanted to emphasize it. Or you moved it to the front of, of your writing if you wanted to emphasize it. He intentionally wanted to emphasize the genealogy of Jesus. And so this is important stuff. So let's look at what he did with it. First thing we see is that he's divided it into three sections. And he says that in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the deportation were 14. And uh, from the deportation to Christ, 14. And so he he intentionally divides it into three sections. And so I highlighted in my Bible, Abraham, David, and after the deportation. So you got the three sections. Now, the 14 generations, I have no clue what that means. I've read some of the commentaries, and they really don't have a clue either. They're all kind of guessing. Well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's, you know, in in Hebrew, uh, the three consonants of David's name, if you add them up uh, in in terms of where they are in the alphabet, uh, they add up to 14. Some people say, oh, that's it. Except this is written in Greek, so you're kind of going... So, you know, what gives here? and So it, 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 none of them really were very helpful. That's a question I have for Matthew one day whenever I'm in heaven. Uh, you know, why, what's the 14 deal? But you go back and he divides it into three sections. In fact, this is a bookend because he's talking about Abraham and David. And then at the very beginning, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So he's emphasizing those two guys. Those two guys are important to this genealogy. And you'll see that my outline focuses on that. That Jesus was this promised blessing. In fact, there's two covenants that were um, given, uh, one to Abraham, uh, one to David, uh, and, and these covenants God fulfilled. Over an almost 2,000 year period, God fulfilled these covenants that he promised 2,000 years before the time of Christ. When he began to talk to Abraham and said, Abraham, I, don't, I want you to do something for me. I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees and I want you to go to the land I will show you. And so you will be a blessing and, 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 and it says, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And so if you look at that, this Abrahamic covenant or Abrahamic blessing, uh, it's a contract that he made with Abraham and it involved three things. He says, go to the land, I will make you a great nation, all the nations be blessed. That was the Abrahamic covenant. And so you see that there's three branches to this tree that, uh, that you have on the screen before you. The Abrahamic contract, God's promises. The Palestinian covenant uh, is in Deuteronomy 30, but it's also in uh, Genesis chapter 15. He lays out exactly what part of the uh, world that's going to be. And it's right there where Israel is today. He said, there's going to be blessing. And he had the old covenant, but you also have the new covenant. And the new covenant is Jeremiah 31, where he says, I will make a new covenant with the houses of Israel, not like the old one, which they broke. And so it's not going to be like the Mosaic covenant. This is going to be a brand new covenant, and it's going to take the place of the old one. The old one is no longer in operation. There's a new one. And Jesus... On the week he died, on the night that he had the Passover supper with his disciples, said, this cup is the new covenant. It's that new covenant that was talked about in Jeremiah 31. And then there's another promise, and that's of a seed, of of a nation, you will make you a great nation. And the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 says that, uh, uh, that there will be this forever throne. Your throne will will endure forever. And so you see this this three-pronged blessing that starts with in, in uh, Genesis with the Abrahamic contract or the Abrahamic covenant that he made uh, 2,000 years before Christ came. And he says, this is the way it's going to be. And he said, the blessing is going to come through your son Isaac, and that's why it had to, to go that direction. And so as we look at that, we realize that uh, we look at this genealogy and we say, okay, what is, what is, let's start with that first section, Abraham, father of Isaac and Jacob. And, you know, we're seeing all that in Genesis, but then there's a list from Perez to David. Uh, you get down to verse three, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father, of, and again, it goes on. I'm not going to sit and read the names to you. Okay. If you want to do that, you can do that. But I, I would, when I look at that, I, I was thinking, you know what? I think that's a quote from Scripture, and it is. It's a quote from Ruth. The end of the book of Ruth gives this list here. It's almost a direct quote out of Ruth. And then when I, I thought, I wonder if there's any other quotes in here. And, and when you look at, uh, and David was the father of Solomon, and you start there in verse 6, and you go through this list of names. That's almost a direct quote out of 1 Chronicles 3, 10 to 14. What does that tell me about Matthew? I know that in Acts chapter 4, it said he was an uneducated man, so he, he hadn't gone through the rabbinic schools. An educated man, recognized he had been with Jesus. He was a man of the word. And so I began to look a little further in the first four chapters before Jesus starts speaking when it's Matthew kind of giving the introduction here. And he quotes scripture 12 times. And think about it, He didn't have a Bible of his own most likely. He probably had to, to use whatever public resources there were in terms of uh, Old Testament. And so here was a man of the word. A man who spent time in God's word. Who understand, understood God's word. And here in this genealogy he quotes it twice. And I would have missed it if I hadn't thought about, oh wow, this, this guy is a man of the word. When I look at this list, there are Gentiles that are mentioned in here. I kind of backed up a little bit and I said, okay, let me just look at this whole list. What do I see here? One of the things that you see is a list of Gentiles. You have Tamar, who is a a Gentile. You have um, Rahab, who was uh, also Canaanite. Uh, uh, Tamar was probably Canaanite. Rahab, definitely Canaanite. Uh, She was the one that was in the uh, uh, Jericho, who... uh, believed in the God of Israel. And you think all the people around her, all the people in Jericho were believing in Baal and Ashtaroth and others and Shamash, And she was believing in the God of Israel. She would have been outcast an outsider. She hid the spies. She put the scarlet thread. She had her family in there when they attacked, when the walls fell. And here was a woman who in Hebrews 11 is called a woman of faith. Tamar, who was a Canaanite, Uh, she was called more righteous than her father-in-law because she believed God. Here, Ruth, it mentions in the book of Ruth, may you be like Tamar. So the other name in this list, may you be like Tamar who was called righteous and she was. Now you have Bathsheba who is not mentioned by name, uh, because you look at this and you think, okay, there's these three Canaanites, but you also have five women mentioned. And so I go on and talk about the other two women in this list. One, it says, was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah? And you think, well, that's Bathsheba. Why didn't they mention her by name? We don't know. But for some reason, didn't mention her by name, but I think his intent was literary, was to bring out the fact that this wasn't a perfect situation. This wasn't a perfect genealogy, which raises a question. You see, most of us, when we write our resume, right, if we have some good things, we include them in the resume. If we have some bad things, we leave them out, right? I mean, how many of you put all the bad stuff, you know, uh, in your resume? You don't do that. You, You clean it up. He doesn't clean it up. So he's not only including Canaanites... And five women, which in ancient times, there were were not women normally included in a genealogy. He mentions five of them. And one's the wife of Uriah. You think, oh, so now he's mentioned in the sin of David and Bathsheba. And in fact, when you start going through this list of names that follow after David, you notice that there are 12 kings of Judah. These 12 kings of Judah uh, are out of the 20 total kings of Judah from the time of Solomon to the time of, uh, of the Babylonian captivity. There were 20 total. You, you read through Kings and Chronicles, you'll find there were 20 kings. And only eight of them, it says, they were a good king. And so you would think he would at least include the eight, right? And then he might have a few other. No, he, he does six and six. Six of the good kings leaves out a couple six bad kings. He doesn't try to clean up the resume. He's not trying to clean this thing up. And so it's got Gentiles, which Gentiles would be all of us who are non-Jews. And it would include uh, those who are, uh, are women, the five women. It includes those who are in sin and, and sinful, six bad kings. And you think, wow, this, why, why is he doing that? He's doing that because... It meets his purpose. His purpose as he walks, as you walk through the book of Matthew, and he bookends it at the end in Matthew 28, when he says, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Make disciples of all nations, right? So Gentiles included: men, women, Gentiles, Jew, sinners righteous or those who appear to be righteous which really there's only one category we're all sinful and you realize when you read through this list he's looking at that he's looking at all people I mean, it fits with what John talks about when it says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, he so loves us, even in our sinful state, even if we're not Jewish, even whether we're men or women or whatever our nationality, he loves us. He doesn't try to clean this up because he wants us to know of his great love for you and for me, that he pursues us And so when I was looking at this genealogy, I was just tremendously moved by the love of our God. One of the things that you also see in this genealogy is the idea of the kinsman redeemer. You have that in um, Ruth and you have that in Tamar. And in Ruth, you're, you're, you know that story well, most of us. We know that she pledged her allegiance to her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law said, you know, there is a kinsman redeemer, someone who, can, who would marry you and, and begin to raise a line that would help her and, 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 and take care of her and save her from poverty and from, from her line being ended. And then in Hebrews, you read about Jesus being our kinsman, our kinsman redeemer. And you begin to realize this genealogy sets up the book. He sets it up well as he's setting up Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He's the one who follows the line of David. And the line of David, by the way, was a line that could have been destroyed. And in fact, Satan worked really hard at trying to destroy this line of David. In fact, after King Jehoshaphat, one of uh, David's descendants, uh, there were a series of intrigues and murders that threatened to wipe out the Davidic line. And you think, wow, if it got wiped out, there was no way that God could fulfill his promise, right? Right. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, it, it, one of the, it, in one of the situations when dealing with King ah, uh, Ahaziah, it says, And they came up on Judah and invaded it, and they carried away all the possessions that were found in the king's house, and also his sons and wives, so there was not a son left to him except Ahaziah, the youngest of his sons. And then Ahaziah was murdered, and, and the queen mother usurped the crown, and, and she began to take it over and began to murder the children. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, we see that, uh, and it was Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw her son was dead. She arose and destroyed all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. But, and then a hard name, uh, the daughter of the king took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered and put him and his nurse in a bedroom. And he survived. And then, uh, then Haman in the book of Esther tried to wipe out. The uh, uh, the uh, all the Jews which would include the kingly line. Then you have after Jesus' birth, you have Herod trying to do it. And so this list here is a list that also demonstrates the miraculous power of God in preserving this heritage and in preserving this godly Davidic line, the line of Abraham and the line of David. And that's, that's within these pages or within these names, you begin to realize God is the God of time. God is the God who keeps his promises. And this took 2000 years from the time of Abraham to, and he doesn't forget his promises. And what hit me is, it's been 2,000 years since the birth of Christ. And the question is, does the genealogy stop with Christ? No, it changes. The genealogy started was a physical descendant of Abraham and of David, uh, uh, an heir to the throne, Messiah, King of Israel. That's who he is But it continues on as a spiritual line after Christ for the last 2,000 years. Yeah, there's a a physical descendant line too, and and Revelation talks about that, and we're not going to go into that today, but there's a spiritual descendancy from Jesus of which we are a part. For 2,000 years, if there was a way that you could begin to trace back your lineage, you would trace it all the way back to the original apostles. And you think about that, and you think, wow, if I knew the names, I could put a a lineage together just like that. And I know it exists because I believe in Jesus. And many of you believe in Jesus. And so we know that lineage exists. And the question is, and here's the question of the hour for me as I was looking at that, is it going to stop with me? Is it going to stop with our generation? Are we going to continue the lineage on? Because we've been given a task when we receive Jesus as Christ as our Savior, we are given a task. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation. Paul talks about that. And that we are be, to be reconciling people to God. And so I thought, what is this lineage? How much difference does it make in my life? One, I know with confidence Jesus was of the line of Abraham, the line of David. He, he fits the bill, and it gives me confidence in who Jesus is. But I also know That it's a challenge for me to continue the line, to continue the spiritual line. And in fact, it really hit me most when I was looking at two of the names in this list Solomon, as we see in verse 6, and Zerubbabel in verse 12. What do they have in common? Solomon built the first temple. God told David, no, you're not going to build it before me. Your son's going to do it. And, and he got everything ready. But Solomon built the first temple. And then it was destroyed by the Babylonians. You know who built the second temple? Zerubbabel in the book of Ezra. And then it was destroyed by the Romans. And then what happened with Jesus what happened with Jesus is that temple changed, and it's no longer a physical building. It moved to the human heart, and Paul talks about that. He says, don't you realize that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the church, and we have those shirts that some of you have been wearing. Is We are the church. It's not this building. God still has a plan for us, and he wants us to move forward with it. Uh, Something I would want to encourage you to do is an application of this message, and as an application of this message, it builds on the last series that Greg did on prayer. I want you to put a list together of five names of people that you can begin to pray for, that you can begin to pray that they would come to know Jesus Christ, that during this Christmas season, and even set a date on it, that by December 30th or by January 6th or whatever the date is that you set, set that date and say, Lord, by this date, I want to be able to share with these five people the love of Christ. I know that uh, whenever I was worried about my parents' uh, salvation, and my wife and I, and I was concerned about it, and my wife and I were going home for, the, for a weekend uh, uh, when we were uh, quite a bit younger, and uh, we began to pray, Lord, this weekend, help us to know. It scared me to death to pray that specifically, because that meant I needed to do something, right? Lord, after this weekend, I want to know. And God gave us some great conversations with my parents. And when we left, I knew. As much as any person can know, I knew where they stood with the Lord. We had some great conversations. I want to encourage you, pray similarly. You're going to see family members. Some you like, some not so much. And pray for them too. Pray that they come to know the Lord. Because when you look at this genealogy, it's not intended to stop here. It's continued on for 2,000 years. There's a spiritual kingdom that's been built and that's continuing to be built. Jesus says, I will build my church, and so we need to ask him, build it here, build it now, build it in our time, build it in our city, build it in our family. Father, we come to you this morning, and we pray that you would do just what I said, that you would build your kingdom that Jesus would build his kingdom now, in this place, in this time, in this city, among our relatives, among our families, among our neighborhoods, among our friends. Lord, I pray that you would continue. I thank you that Jesus clearly is of the line of Abraham and the line of David, both on his father and his mother's side. There's no question about that. And Lord, you are the one who preserves generations. You're the one who preserved the godly line. You're the one who preserved the Davidic line so that you could have a forever king on the throne. That Jesus, who rules in our hearts now and one day will rule upon this world, Lord, we look forward to what you're going to continue to do. And Lord, I pray that you would use the likes of us as we share our testimony about how we came to Jesus as we have spiritual conversations and not just conversations about sports and other things that we love, but that we'd have spiritual conversations with those whom we love. Because we know that you so loved us that you came after us. You pursued us. You didn't let us get away. When we were walking away, you came after us. Thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that we would be your vessels, that we would be willing vessels to communicate your truth to those around us. We pray in Jesus' precious name, amen.